Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today, which is June 2nd, 2016. We have with us Scott Stevens, and he was on our show a couple of years ago, and there's been a pretty big demand to have him back, so we're really glad to be able to do that. I suppose you all know somebody in your life who suffers from alcoholism. It's a very trying and difficult disease, not only for the alcoholic, but also for the people in their lives. You know, we we often ask ourselves, why is an alcoholic, um, why does an alcoholic have such a tough time of staying sober? Well, you know, we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about the stigma of being an alcoholic, and we'll even get into some drug addiction issues because that is also something that Scott has been working on lately, and we we do want to be timely in our in our interview. So let's bring Scott onto our show now. Hi, Scott. Hello, Denise. It's awesome to be back on your show. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> oh, we're so glad to have you. Uh, listeners, I also wanted to um, tell you that he's the author of, of a book called Every Silver Lining Has a Cloud. And he's also uh, written another book that, is it coming out in June, Scott? Or, no, it came out or is it already? Uh, Ju- this time last year it came out. It was uh, okay. launched in San Francisco. That book is called Adding Fire to the Fuel, and that's my, my third book on the topic of alcoholism and recovery. This third one is about the stigma of alcoholism. Okay, okay, so you, you've got three. So you've been very busy man since I last spoke with you. Well, last I checked, uh, Lynchburg, Tennessee didn't stop uh, making Jack Daniels, so I'm going to keep writing about it. <laughs> My gosh. Uh, for those listeners who aren't familiar with who you are, how did you get on the path that you're on today? Well, I am an alcoholic in recovery. I had my uh, my challenges with the disease of alcoholism, but it wasn't always that way. When I, when I was a kid, uh, growing up, age 14 is when I had my first drink, and it was pretty much uh, in the background for a long time after that. And age 14 seems kind of young, but today the age of first use is down to 12, which is a little frightening. Uh, and girls girls a little bit earlier than boys. But back in my day, back in the 80s, uh, I had my first drink at age 14. Fast forward till I was 33 years old. I guess you could say I'm a, a late bloomer, but <laughs> that's when... That's what alcohol turned on me. I had a, a corner office career with a large financial services firm, and uh, seemingly everything was going perfectly. But part of my job was entertaining and uh, entertaining clients, entertaining out till late hours of the evening, mm-hmm. and it always involved alcohol. Well, uh, it got to a point where the, my wife at the time was concerned about my drinking because my drinking had gone from maybe three, four times a year to monthly and then daily drinking. And that, uh, as the mother of my children, she had every right to say, mm-hmm. wait a minute, Scott, something's wrong here. And, you know, please take a look at this. And uh, I promised her for her birthday in 2004 that I would quit drinking because, hey, I, I've got the corner office job. I can do anything. And I tried to quit drinking, and not even by noon the next day, I started shaking profusely, and sweat was just rolling off me, and I I felt like I was going to die on the spot. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I realized I 
am owned by alcohol. I, I can't quit, at least not mm. on my own. But but being the genius that I am, I said, hey, I got the solution <laughs> to this. I, I, can, I can fix this. And a lot of <laughs> a lot of alcoholics are in that same boat. I think I can I can solve this on my own. And through trial and error, they eventually discovered that they can't. And my original solution was I'll become a maintenance drinker. And that way I'll avoid the shakes. I'll avoid the sweats. I'll avoid any outward appearance of being an alcohol. I'll, I'll fool everybody. And I carried on that quarter office job for another two years and uh, drank my way out of that marriage, drank my way into the second marriage and out of that second marriage in that meantime. But I was I was drinking up to or at least two liters of Jack Daniels a day over that period of time. But it was never, Denise, it was never this thing where I'd, I'd sit and I'd pound them down until I got mm-hmm. completely squirrely. It was a it was a matter of feeling normal and avoiding the shakes, avoiding the sweats and feeling comfortable in my own skin. So uh, a blood alcohol level of 0.08 is the legal limit to drive at a point alcohol level somewhere north of there is where my body was was conditioned. It was where my blood alcohol level had to be to feel normal because I'd built up a, an incredible tolerance at that point. Start the morning with a with a sip off a bottle of Jack Daniels just to get downstairs from my bed. Uh, it all came to a screeching halt when my second divorce came about. I was drinking that much and I lost my chauffeur. So I decided to drive myself around thinking that I can beat the system. And I got four OWI tickets in six weeks, which uh, that makes me a felon. And that makes me very obviously an alcoholic. So mm-hmm. I, at that at that point in my life, I began my my recovery journey, not without a couple of relapses. And that's what my second book was about. Every silver lining has a cloud is about relapse and how nine out of 10 of us do it. We don't have to, it doesn't have to be part of recovery, but it's part of mine and we shouldn't be ashamed of that. And, uh, finally in 2010, I got it and I've been sober ever since it's been a long journey and I've Mm -hmm. been writing about that journey. As a, as a person who started out in journalism, I've always loved to write, and now I am back doing journalism as a health reporter and as an author, and recently as a DVD author. And <laughs> to, to do this, it brings me full circle. I started out doing the career of my dreams in television, and here I am back 30 years later almost doing the career of my dreams again a second time mm-hmm. very few people can say they've lived their dream job once and i've had it twice so how about that's that? very true that's very true and when you have a passion for something it's not work anymore Mm-hmm. and i i enjoy the uh the help that i'm able to give when i can give it and whatever format i can give it in whether it's a radio program like yours or mm-hmm. the books or, or public speaking and to see that aha moment on the look of an alcoholic's face when he says oh my god this is this is it but it's not a a disastrous fate or it doesn't have to be you know you, when when you make that discovery that uh, that you have the disease of alcoholism sure it's incurable sure it's progressive and fatal but it is very treatable and mm-hmm. this could be the start of an entirely new life, and mine has been the best life yet. Are there stages that an alcoholic goes through before they finally say it to themselves? Well, there's always denial. Um, denial right up until the end. I mean, there are people who will go to their grave from this disease denying that they have a drinking problem. This is um, the only disease that that will convince you that you do not have it because as long as you're getting alcohol in your body, you feel normal. You don't feel sick. Let's say for example, if you have uh, a type, you have cancer, you feel sick when you have cancer because your body aches, your body is decaying from the inside out. Well, when you're an alcoholic, when you're active in your disease, you don't feel sick. It's not until you take the alcohol away that you begin to feel sick because your body has built up a tolerance. In fact, your tissues begin to burn alcohol more efficiently than it burns a sugar molecule. So your body relies on alcohol as, as its fuel. 
And that is one reason why alcohol withdrawal is the only withdrawal, one of only two withdrawals, benzodiazepines. Uh, think of Xanax, for example. That's a benzodiazepine. Mm-hmm. That's the other drug withdrawal that can be fatal. A heroin user may think they're going to die and may wish they're going to die during a heroin withdrawal. But alcoholism and benzodiazepine are the only two drug withdrawals that will kill you because your body is dependent on it as a survival mechanism. Oh, my gosh. So so back to the original question, there, there are a number of phases. There's, there's, uh, there's denial runs from beginning to end. I mean, and it's... Well, beginning until the, from the beginning of self-exploration, beginning to question your relationship with alcohol, right up until the time where you've achieved some degree of sobriety. Once you're past early sobriety, into you know whether it's a uh, six months down the road after abstinence or whether it's five years down the road, the the denial goes away eventually. But that is the first and foremost symptom or, or warning sign or problem or phase with alcoholism is the denial. The pre-contemplation phase is what I went through in 2004, where my wife at the time said, I'm concerned and I'm worried Mm -hmm. for our kids Mm -hmm. and I'm worried for your health, your job, everything. Mm -hmm. Then that that put the seed in my head that, uh, okay, there might be something wrong here. Um, that that begins the pre-contemplation phase where we begin to evaluate our relationship with alcohol. We're not ready to quit yet because um, you know, that denial still has us by both hands and shaking us pretty good. Uh, but thereafter, once you get into the pre-contemplation stage, it's important for family members, for all the support mechanisms around that person to continue to support the idea that treatment is not a synonym for misery, that this is the the start of something great rather than the end of uh, a long, good run. Because, frankly, uh, how many of those good old days were actually good old days anyway? And then True. You get into contemplation, and then you you make the decision, and then after that, uh, you know there are some people that they can they can be abstinent and they can swear off alcohol forever and never experience a relapse. Those people are very few and far between, but mm-hmm. they exist. Mm-hmm. And I, I my hats off to them. I wish. Well, I don't wish wish away my journey, actually. But, you know, it could have been a different story for me. But I did relapse a couple of times before sobriety finally took a hold, before I finally realized that sobriety was a better thing to have than to lack. And that, mm-hmm. that is really, that's really the, the defining moment where you realize that sobriety is a better thing to have than to lack. And you begin to live your life along that directive where you're you're no longer missing the drink you're no longer wondering uh what are my old buddies doing or boy this softball game would be a lot more fun if i had a cold one in my hand you know those thoughts go away at that moment that you realize that sobriety is a better thing to have than to lack and it takes a it takes a whole constellation of things to get people along this path. They need that uh, encouragement from the family. Sometimes it's a nudge from the judge because they got four OWIs in six weeks or hopefully a lot fewer than that or no interaction with the law. But the threat of getting an OWI or DUI stands foremost in their head when they're getting behind the wheel. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's this whole constellation of things that will help people through the different phases. And one of those things is the health consequences of drinking alcohol, which was, uh, which has been uh, part of my, my work ever since, well, ever since I started back in 2010, but especially a key focus of mine this year is looking at the health consequences because we, we all agree that have this idea that alcohol is safe. Hey, they sell it in grocery stores. They, They have a legal limit, but a legal mm-hmm. limit does not mean a safe limit, and there, this is a toxin and a known carcinogen. So as I've been focusing my attention this year as helping people at one point of that constellation that I can, that I can definitively point to no health benefit, period, to any amount of alcohol because it is, in evidence-based studies, a, a carcinogen and a toxin that the body doesn't favor very well. Mm-hmm. Well, you said that it took you two years from the from the moment that it was brought to your attention mm-hmm. to do something about it. And what was your first step? Um, 
my first step was in was to go to treatment. I I had tried a number of things along that two-year path. I, mean, I wanted a geographical change. A lot of us with, with an, a relationship with alcohol think that's going to solve everything. I'm going to move to Arizona and mm. soak in the sunshine. But you know what's easier to find in Arizona? It's easier to find an alcohol establishment than it is to find a treatment center and the resources that you need in that new location. So a geographical change will backfire inevitably. Okay. Um, that was one thing that I that I tried. I tried moderate drinking. I tried to control my drinking, which clearly was out of control. I I didn't start out drinking Jack Daniels when when this all went south on me. I was a mm-hmm. beer drinker. What made me consider oh. Jack Daniels? What made me consider? Well, I grew up in Wisconsin. It's uh, okay. the beer capital of the known universe. So we uh, we start early and we start with Miller products up here. But that aside, when I switched, it was because I was drinking so much beer. I'd be getting up three, four times a night to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an inconvenience. So I switched to Jack Daniels, thinking I'd go to the bathroom less and still oh, get the alcohol in my body. Interesting. And, other people will try to drink vodka because there's this old myth that you, you can't smell vodka. Well, yeah, you can smell vodka, and you, it's usually coming out your pores that we're mm-hmm. smelling it. But there's, you know, there's experimentation throughout the process. For me, it was a geographical change, which failed. It was uh, getting out of my existing marriage into the second marriage. Marry, marry my drinking buddy. What a great plan. Oh. Because that won't be a problem in my house, mm. now will it? If so, uh, there there are all sorts of things that, um, and and I'll tell you, this is one of the advantages of going to groups like AA or Men for Sobriety or Women for Sobriety. These types of groups are long. You're sitting alongside a bunch of other people who have tried the same stunts that you're going to try if you're early in sobriety. Listen to what they're saying because story after story will confirm the the obvious and that it doesn't work these things don't work the only thing that works with 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 the disease of alcoholism is abstinence to quit putting this toxin in your body quit and let professionals help it's it's great to have a group like aa but it's also great to have the companionship and the support of a of a trained professional whether it's an interventionist a, a recovery coach a doctor a therapist you name it the the list of professionals and paraprofessionals in this business is as long as my arm find one because they're they're an incredible mm-hmm. resource in mm-hmm. finding finding your path to sobriety and staying on it and if you don't have the financial resources, would you uh, recommend AA or are there other organizations that would be helpful? There are, there are a number of treatment resources for people with Title 19 insurance, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera. There, there are treatment resources across the board, whether it's uh, – no finances, low finances, public assistance, all the way up until your private pay. Are there enough of these resources? Absolutely not. We, oh. we, are, we are continually struggling uh, in this country, and it, it's come to light in the recent talk of an opioid epidemic that we don't have enough treatment resources. But frankly, this alcohol pandemic has been going on for centuries, and mm-hmm. we don't have we don't have the treatment resources today to to handle everyone. But anyone who does wishes or has a desire to get treatment should pursue it. Because there's always a bed somewhere. So even some of these more luxurious places that uh, seem out of reach, some of them scholarship people. Some of them will work with your existing insurance. Uh, we'll find a way to make it happen. There, mm-hmm. there are a lot of compassionate people on the treatment center side of the business. You might not always find them on the insurance side of the business. And, and I, I can say that because I used to work in the insurance industry. But mm-hmm. on the treatment side, we want to create success stories. We want to work with whoever the, the client is to make them discover what a lot of us uh, have discovered and that there is a better life 
beyond a drug like alcohol or any other drug. So mm-hmm. treatment resources begin at the at the uh, both ends of the spectrum. So we we can go high end or we can go to the point where a person doesn't have the resources but they have the desire. Alcoholics Anonymous is always free, uh, but that is not treatment. That is a that is a it's a group. It's it's not group therapy, but it's a, a group support. And mm-hmm. there's not there's not a professional in there, and uh, that that's not a knock on AA. They've been forever non-professional, and mm-hmm. that has been a 80-year success story for them. So why not? Um, they the treatment support groups or support groups are not treatment. Uh, treatment's a, a bit different. It's a lot more structured, and an AA is a good resource. What you'll find in this country especially is a lot of the treatment centers and treatment facilities, whether it's intensive outpatient or inpatient facility, is going to be oriented toward getting a person to attend meetings. They're going to be 12-step oriented, which means that they recognize that the this resource out in the community, um, it, no, it's not for everyone, but it does work for a great many people. And it helps the continuum of treatment because those 28 days or 60 days or six months you're in treatment has to end sometime. You have to go back to the community. And once you get in the community, uh, nobody's going to build a shrine to me just because I got sober. But I can go to these meetings and talk with people who speak the same language I do, have walked the same path that I have, and they get it. They they understand it, and we can we can continue our journey together. And that's that's where this becomes such a valuable resource in the or in the later part of of recovery. In addition to being there and at the front end as a as a no fee no cost resource for people in the community or people who are in that contemplation stage who think mm-hmm. oh, maybe maybe I got something. I guess I find it um, rather cumbersome for for someone who's an alcoholic that doesn't have the finances for finding those specific treatment centers. Mm-hmm. I think um, it's a cumbersome task. I, I don't even know how they would even go about finding them. Do you go to an AA meeting and people there would give you recommendations? Or do you just do a search on the Internet? And how do you know that those places are reputable? It's a very good question. Uh, going to an AA meeting or any type of, of recovery group, whether it's uh, Smart Recovery is another one that's growing in popularity, uh, secular organizations for sobriety, SOS, Women for Sobriety, any of these groups will have members within that group that have gone to a treatment facility. They can tell you it's ups and downs. Uh, just remember you're hearing this from one person who's mm-hmm. – uh, basing that on their one experience at their stage right. in life and their stage in recovery. But that's a, that is a good starting point. Uh, the okay. internet is there. There are a number of search engines that can pump out a number of lists. I happen to work for Addicted Minds, which is a treatment uh, center directory. I'm, I serve as their public relations officer to you know, help spread the word that these kind of resources are online and we help people find treatment. There, and there are oh, a number of them out there. And if somebody went to addictedminds.com or shoot me an email, if you're serious about it, um, you know, my email is scott at alcohologist.com. I talk to a lot of people. I'm not always able to help, um, mm-hmm. but I will do my best to okay. to help that person because that moment of lucidity, that moment of decision-making is so key, and I can't emphasize it enough with the denial part of this, with this disease being the only one that convinces you that you don't have it. You know, if we wait, say, 10 days to make a decision to get you into treatment, a lot can happen in those 10 days. In fact, uh, you can you can die. And there, there are enough people in this country dying of drug overdoses, let alone the disease of alcoholism or alcohol overdose or car wrecks, all these things. Uh, we don't need that to happen. So I like to be a resource whenever I can. Oh, uh, and... and Anywhere you go out there, uh, you know the the internet is still the wild wild west. You're going to find mm-hmm. some some kind of 
some kind of uh, shaky characters out there, but do your homework. Don't just go to one site and say, oh, boy, this is, look at this palace they're going to put me up in for free. Well, it might not be that way. So do your homework if you're using the Internet or give me give me a shout. Uh, use Addicted Minds. Use any one, of the, any one of the resources you have. Also speak with your local counselors or local physicians. They're not always going to have the the key uh, or the whole scope of the treatment universe from coast to coast, but they'll know some local resources that they can put you in the direction of. That okay, would be, okay. uh, whether it's a general practice physician, whether it's a counselor, um, you know, they'll be in touch with the local resources. They, if not, if they don't have that specific experience, somebody in their office does because the, the disease of alcoholism, the disease of addiction, uh, strikes one in ten people in this country. One in eight, if you if you look at other numbers, which look at the, the degree of binge drinking in this country and consider that as, as hazardous and dangerous, which I do. Hmm. Those are pretty high statistics. I'm kind of curious. Yeah, the, I, um, I never hear about individuals dying from an overdose of alcohol. You hear... You hear people dying from overdoses of drugs, but never mm-hmm. alcohol. Why is that? Uh, key key point of delineation here: alcohol is a drug, and that is one okay. thing. Um, and and that's that's not directed toward you, Denise. This is directed no, I know. You know but, universally but, because we don't we don't treat this as a drug, and it is very much a drug just because we can exactly. get it yeah, as that's easily. My point. That's but my point where about. we and when they exactly. when they report when they report people dying, you mm-hmm. know, are they referring to alcoholics that have died of a drug overdose as well? Not, not necessarily. What what we tend to see is somebody who gets into a binge situation, and every year I I, I collect the headlines on this with college students getting off on a, a binge on a weekend and ramping up their blood alcohol level to dangerous levels and your your body begins to shut down um, okay. as as you as you get more intoxicated you'll slip into a coma for an inexperienced drinker that's somewhere around 0.30 or over four times the legal limit for driving for some people it might be a lot higher for a person who's got the tolerance, but the the difference, if you if you consider a graph, the two lines between tolerance dose, pass out dose is very narrow, and then the death dose is right on top of that pass out dose. So the the lines are very very close to one another, and this is where a young inexperienced drinker, or an old inexperienced drinker, or an old experienced drinker can get into a situation where they drink too much too fast. Their body shuts down, respiratory failure and cardiac failure set in, and they they die from drinking too much too fast. The other ways that alcohol could kill you, uh, the disease of alcoholism can lead to a, a number of other diseases. Heart disease is the number one killer of alcoholics, not cirrhosis of the liver. And you, we may find that a bit odd since we, yeah, we've all is. heard this. We've heard this myth that, you know, hey, wine's good for your heart. Well, the resveratrol in the wine is good for your heart, and that resveratrol comes from the skin of grapes. Just eat the grapes. Because when you put alcohol into the mix, it counteracts any good that you're going to get from the resveratrol. Red wine, white wine, any kind of alcohol is going to be damaging to the heart, and the damage is cumulative. Mm-hmm. So the number one killer of alcoholics is heart disease, not cirrhosis. Cirrhosis is a big one out there. Um, Car wrecks, you know, there's a number of ways that the disease of alcoholism alcoholism can contribute to death. But as far as overdose, uh, there are uh, over 2,000 alcohol overdoses every year in this country. I I believe the number is 2,400 or 2,500 to be exact. The that is the number of people who die in a binge drinking incident where they, the alcohol becomes so toxic in their body that their body shuts down. And that number, mm-hmm. 2,500, is only part of the total 
alcohol-related death toll in this country. The death toll in this country for alcohol-related um, causes is 89,000. That's, that's more than die of the flu. And wow. you, know what a fuss we, you know what a fuss we make about the flu shot in this country, but we don't make of any course. fuss about, uh, well, here, here, this alcohol might, might kill you, might not. You might not be one of the 89,000. That's more people than, than attended inside the stadium at Levi's Stadium this year at the Super Bowl. That's a lot of bodies. That's that a lot is of families impacted by it. Mm-hmm. If, the- if we look at two, I, I can toss out there that you know a lot of people will will associate alcohol-related death to one of two things: uh, drinking and driving, or cirrhosis. Cirrhosis kills about six thousand people a year. Drinking and driving kills ten thousand people a year. Both of these are very, very tragic things, and I don't make light of them at all, but that is only a small portion of how alcohol kills, mm-hmm. uh, kills people. With 89,000 being the total, you look at heart disease, you look at cancer, and this is, this is a carcinogen linked directly to eight different types of cancer. So it, it, it is insidious and very silent in the way that it kills us because uh, we don't really talk about the things we don't talk about. And that is mm-hmm. that alcohol really is, is not good for ordinary human tissue. Um, with the heart disease, how, mm-hmm. how, does, how does that um, symptomatically um, come about? It, is it a weakening sure. of the heart muscle or, or what? The the metabolism of alcohol it goes from when you put alcohol into your body, it goes directly into your bloodstream. As it's metabolized, it's first broken down to a substance called acid aldehyde. This was one of the segments I did on my A Files episodes, mm-hmm. and by far the uh, most popular of the series because people don't realize that when it breaks it down to this first step, acid aldehyde, mm-hmm. it is that's actually 30 times more toxic than the alcohol was. But your body has to break it down step by step from acetaldehyde. It gets broken down further into vinegar or acetic acid, and then from there into CO2 and water. And that's, that's the process of going through the body. That acetaldehyde, what that does is it weakens muscle tissue, in your heart being the body's most important muscle. And as the, as the weakening continues, I mean, as the drinking continues, so does the weakening. It's a cumulative process. So you're not going to drink a glass of wine and, and drop out of a gripper right on the spot. You're, you're gradually weakening the heart muscle to the point mm-hmm. where even, even years after abstinence, you're going to discover that you have heart problems and these may be related to the alcohol that you put in your body. Um, now, another way that another way that alcohol affects the heart is alcohol raids the body of B vitamins and B vitamins are very important for your brain and that they're also very important for the heart and for healthy heart function you need your B vitamins. Alcohol raids the body of them and blocks absorption of B vitamins. So as a result the heart is not healthy when it is under the influence of even a small dose of alcohol and that again is also cumulative. So it could be over a period of years that a person has been drinking and then abstained for a long period of time and one of the things that people also don't realize, and, and frankly, I didn't realize this, this was kind of the impetus behind all of my work. Um, mm-hmm. I, I discovered all these things that I sat up and said, hey, I never heard of any of this stuff. And if I hadn't heard of this, a, a guy with two college degrees and and a reasonable professional career have never discovered any of these things. There's a lot of people out there who are drinking who are not aware of these these repercussions. I always thought that alcohol lowered your blood pressure, you know, calmed you down, mellowed you out because it is a central nervous system depressant. Mm-hmm. But in actuality, alcohol causes hypertension. So there's another way that um, alcohol is not good for heart health. If we, there are two studies that were done in Japan, I want to say 2013, at Kyushu University, and one was at Osaka University, and these linked or looked at blood pressure readings from a single drink, and your blood pressure goes up anywhere from 1.4 to 5.4 on just a single drink and that's the that's the upper number in your blood pressure 
Ugh. Just on a single. Just on a single drink. So here I thought all along that, hey, it's helping me relax. It's chilling mm-hmm. me out. It's it's lowering my blood pressure. Not a chance. In, in actuality, in evidence-based studies, alcohol increases blood pressure. So hypertension, B vitamin rating, and muscle weakness, these are three ways that alcohol affects your heart. Those are huge. Just huge. And it, yeah, and, and when we look at overall... <laughs> The things that we are taking medication for when we see the doctor, high blood pressure is among the top prescribed drug drugs in mm-hmm. this country mm-hmm. to lower our blood pressure. And cholesterol is another one. Guess what increases your cholesterol, especially your triglyceride level? The that's that number you know we pay attention to the LDL mm-hmm. and the HDL. Mm-hmm. Triglycerides is that third number. Guess what number increases or guess what well, it, drug increases it that? Be- Alcohol. Yeah, because it, it doesn't it um, transform into a form of sugar in your body. Mm-hmm. And what happens is when your body is busy processing the alcohol, your liver is kind of not processing fat. It's uh, if it goes on for a long time, a lot of alcoholics de- develop fatty liver disease, and your your body is shoving that fat into the bloodstream and into the area around the liver while it's busy processing the alcohol. So that's going to cause an elevation in your triglyceride level because your your liver's a, a very tough, uh, very very mm-hmm. efficient organ, but it can only handle so much at one time. And when it when it does when it's exposed to a toxin as severe as alcohol. All other things go to the side, and the liver is focused on processing that alcohol, getting that toxin out of the body as quickly as possible. What is the um, medium age that an alcoholic lives to? Well, uh, the way the CDC looks at it is with life expectancy. And a life expectancy survey done by the CDC in 2012 said that alcohol use shaves, moderate alcohol use shaves at least 12 months off of a person's life expectancy. And heavy or alcoholic consumption of alcohol, alcoholic drinking alcoholically is what I'm trying to say, is mm-hmm. going to shave 20 years off your life expectancy. 20 years. So mm-hmm. if we... Even even the moderate drinker who thinks that this has some miraculous life-extending property, they're getting their life cut short by a year. And the uh, the heavier drinker, like myself, if I keep on drinking, I'm going to live to, well, life expectancy for males is, what, 78-something now? I would live to yes. I'm 58. I don't like that. I said that prognosis is not good. I lost my father at, at when he was age 58. I don't want my kids to go through that. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. had I, had I continued the path on on which I was traveling, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a, there's a high likelihood I would have died in a car wreck. But aside from that, all the other health issues would have shortened my life expectancy to the same age that my dad passed away. Do heavy drinkers fall under those that stop for long periods of time and then they start up again and then they go into a total binge where they might just binge for three weeks straight and then Mm -hmm. they come out of it and then they leave alone for a while and then they go back in again. Maybe something triggers them and maybe six months later they do it again or nine months later. Is that considered Mm -hmm. a heavy dream drinker? That is. That is considering. You know, you wouldn't Mm -hmm. think it. Wouldn't think so, um, especially if they only do it a couple times a year or something. But the damage yes. probably from the continuous drinking and not eating um, on those binges—I guess that's what they call them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Bin- binge drinking carries its own risks in addition to, or uh, as opposed to daily drinking, and all. All in, when we look at a person's lifetime, the the amount of alcohol that they're putting in their body, whether it's all at once during a, a week-long, two-week-long binge and then not drinking again for six months versus drinking a six-pack or a 12-pack daily just to maintain their their comfort level, you know, the, the risks are the same for a binge drinker uh, the health risks are the same for a binge drinker or for the daily drinker. That, that's why the disease of alcoholism has such a broad definition 
because there are a lot of people that will fit into that. The the amount that uh, that doctors recommend on a daily basis. Uh, this this came out from the USDA earlier this year. They said one to two glasses a day, and that is actually a lot of alcohol when you consider that. Uh, and, and the advice I find is a little bit erroneous because uh, that much alcohol a day gives a double-digit increase risk for women to get breast breast cancer. Now, one in eight women in this country are going to face breast cancer in their lifetime. If they're drinking one or two drinks a day, this gives them a double-digit increase in risk. This is the only dietary connection made to breast cancer. Why are we recommending a daily dose of this? I I have some issues with the USDA making such a recommendation to drink a known carcinogen and toxic. But that aside, when we look at low levels of drinking, moderate drinkers, it's considered mm-hmm. to be the person who has one or two drinks a day or five drinks in a, in a binge on a weekend. Those people will face the same kind of risk. But um, if you, if you, and if you get into looking at the overall picture, if you're drinking six, seven a day or drinking 20 on a weekend, you know, these things average themselves out because the amount of, of work that your body is doing to rid itself of the toxin is also exposing all the organs in your body to that toxin while mm-hmm. it's in, while it remains in the bloodstream, whether it's just for a weekend or whether it's throughout the entire week. I have never followed the history of alcohol, but I wonder mm-hmm. um, how far back it goes. Wow. They have found mm-hmm. in... Egypt, 5,000-year-old beer-making accessories. So oh. they were drinking they were drinking beer in the pyramid days. Now, you know, you look at biblical times, a lot of times they were drinking wine, partially because the water system was so crummy, but mm-hmm. because, you know, this was part of celebration. It was part of daily life in their times, and grapes were plentiful. Um, so it goes back quite a bit. But if you look ancestrally, to the the primates, this goes back 10 million years. And when the first really? primates, yes, the the gen, the genes for processing alcohol go back to the early primates. When we first dropped out of trees, when we were in trees, we were eating fresh fruit. When we dropped out of the trees, we're eating the fruit off the ground, which has fermented, which has turned partially. To alcohol, and oh as a, as a matter as a matter of evolution, those who survived had this gene called alcohol dehydrogenase, which helps the body break down the alcohol and, and process the alcohol through the body. Oh. And the 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 it goes back ten million years. It, it's pretty stunning. That that came out in early 2015 in a in the study, and I read that and I said, you know, this this is going to be a lot of fun when I do presentations and okay. have pictures of apes up there. You know, people will be saying, hey, that looks kind of looks like you. They're and drunk. I said, well, you know, ten million years ago, that that was They're me, and drunk. that's a, that's one that's one drunken <laughs> monkey right there. Oh, that is really funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my word. What um. Let's talk about what you've been working on recently. Um, I want our audience to learn about your 26 video series and mm-hmm. your DVD series. Yes. Uh, for Alcohol Awareness Month this year, um, you know, I look at this constellation of things that it takes a person to get into recovery, and one of those things is is health. And what a lot of Americans don't recognize is the health consequences of even light to moderate drinking, um, because this is a toxin, this is a drug, this is a carcinogen. So in Alcohol Awareness Month, I did a 26-segment series called the A-Files, Alcohol A to Z. Picked one letter from the alphabet each day, did a two-minute video on that uh, for the letter A. It was acetaldehyde, talking about that first step in the metabolic process, creating a substance 30 times more dangerous than alcohol. For B, I picked on breast cancer, this being the only dietary connection to an increased risk. C, I did cancer again, but pointing out the other seven types of cancer that alcohol has definitively been linked to by the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, D, dementia. E, economic toll. F, 
fetal alcohol syndrome continues down the whole alphabet uh-huh. A to Z. Two-minute segments on each. I did those uh, daily through April, which was Alcohol Awareness Month. And at the end of April, I rolled the entire series out on DVD as uh, uh, 26 segments. You can watch them all back-to-back if you're that courageous, or you can watch them one at a time. They come with a separate DVD that also has a fact sheet on that topic, which uh, gives the citations, the studies that I that I include in the art mm-hmm. in the video segment, mm-hmm. and it's all packaged up nicely. Where um, a physician, a public health official, a counselor, or a concerned loved one can mm-hmm. say, "Hey, look, th- these are the evidence-based facts about the drug that you're using." And when when I look at the entire series, boy, that was a lot to to take on for a guy who's a writer but Mm -hmm. it was a it was fun and b i think overall the feedback that i've had on this from from the medical profession and from the counseling profession and from a couple of interventionists is that this is really helpful this takes Mm -hmm. this takes the emotion out of the discussion because we are faced with a very emotional topic when we're talking about alcoholism. But when we talk about alcohol as a drug, this takes the emotion out of it and mm-hmm. this looks at just the facts. This is this is what it's doing to your body. This is the brain damage that it's causing. 40% of new brain cells aren't being made because, uh, aren't being replenished because of alcohol use. So if, if you're losing brain tissue, if that doesn't scare you, um, it scares the heck out of me. Um, but if that doesn't scare you, here's the next video in the series and we talk about uh, the economic toll what a lot of people will not realize or or come to terms with is this alcohol pandemic causes 250 billion with a b dollars in economic damage to our country year in and year out and that's enough for every man woman and child in this country to get a brand new 40 inch tv and a playstation Uh every year so the mm-hmm. economic toll, what what this is going to cost you, not just in terms of you know the money leaving your wallet when you buy a drink, but also what it's going to cost you in future doctor bills because your health is going to fail, uh, what it's going to cost you in uh, lost income because uh, typically alcoholics have a hard time holding a job or they definitely mm-hmm. are put on a lower lower pay scale, lower lower track to uh, advancement, et cetera. So, you know, putting all these things together in this DVD series called the A-Files A to Z has been a a real challenge for me, but it's been greatly received, and I I really enjoyed doing it. And now that it's out on DVD through my website, through Amazon, uh, through eBay, a couple of of other resources out there, um, to have the A-Files out there as as a set to just say, look, this is what the toxin is doing to you. Make your decision about drinking wisely. I'm not going to be the guy who stands in the grocery store as some kind of activist to say, you can't drink. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not that guy. Um, mm-hmm. To be an activist, you you have to lead public opinion. And boy, I barely lead the opinion in my own house sometimes. But to be <laughs> an advocate of, you know, of common sense and of full disclosure, full information about what we're not getting in these commercials that have the bikinis and the smiling faces. This is what it's really doing to you. Make your decision um, with with an informed mind. So, Scott Stevens, your DVDs are called A-Files, and they can yes. be purchased on your website, which is called what? Alcohologist.com, alcohologist. Dot com And for your listeners, if anybody orders, please put in health news or health media now in the comments when you check out. And I will include a free download for your listeners of my most recent book, which is Adding Fire to the Fuel. So that's on alcohologist.com. You can also order them on Amazon, they they will show that okay. their inventory is out. They will show that their inventory is out, but I send them to them uh, today, so they're they're going to okay. have more in their inventory. And where Amazon is, um, I won't be able to honor that free download on Amazon. So you can order it and alcoholologists will get that free download if you want, or go to Amazon if you're a Prime member. Um, on my site, I give free shipping anyway. Um, Wonderful. Those. Those two sites are, are both uh, both places where this DVD series can be ordered, and it's uh, the DVD, the 26 video segments, along with 26 fact sheets, 
And, uh, you know, as an added perk for your listeners, they can get a download of that most recent book, which came out last year, Adding Fire to the Fuel, about the stigma of alcoholism and how we can avoid turning public stigma into self-stigma and sabotaging our recovery. My book before that was Adding Fire, or uh, excuse me, Every Silver Lining Has a Cloud, widely well-received book about relapse and recovery. And my book before that, my first one, was What the Early Worm Gets. And all three of those are available on my site, on Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble does not have the DVD series, by, by okay. the way. But but you can you can get the books anywhere that uh, books are sold, even if it's a sure. bricks-and-mortar retailer. Uh-huh. You can ask for it at their, at their order desk if they don't have it on the shelves. But, uh, you know, a lot of people are ordering their reading materials, whether it's a, a downloadable ebook or hardcover or softcover through uh, – Amazon or through Barnes and Noble or one of uh, iTunes. It's on iTunes as well. So uh, any one of those books, or just go to alcohologist.com and get a get the information there. Well, you have outdone yourself today. You by far exceeded my expectations. It's been a just a well, I, wonderfully informative interview, and I just so enjoy talking with you. Well, I really enjoy being on your show. This is, uh, you know, it's a good dialogue. You know, we need to continue to talk about the things that we yes, don't talk we do. about, and 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 having a good host to bring it out is uh, is extra special for me to be able to to uh, be a guest on the show. Well, thanks again. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. It's just gone so quickly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good luck to you. With your, Thank um, you very much, Denise. With with all your products and your passion for this subject matter is just amazing. Take care. Thank you, Denise. Have a good one. Bye-bye. All right, listeners, that concludes our interview for today. Thank you so much for tuning in, and um, uh, be well. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit Got Cancer? Now What? for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What?